not the time to shirk. We can do Welcome to We Can Do It, a Canadian podcast focused on climate change, the environment, and nuclear energy. Today I'm joined by Jay Harris, who is an Indigenous energy consultant and a strong proponent of SMR development for remote locations. Jay Harris, welcome. Thank you for having me, Chris. So, Jay, you know, I've, I've given a very, very brief introduction there. Um, you have a, a pretty illustrious career. Um, one of the things I, that I noted in some of the materials you sent me was that you uh, conducted the most northern police investigation in Canadian history. Um, can you um, give us a little bit more that we can sort of fill our understanding out of, of where you're coming from and, and why you developed this interest that you have in, uh, in uh, SMRs in the north? Well, Chris, um, that's a big one. I think what it comes down to is that overall, when you when you go up into the into remote communities, indigenous communities in particular, and I'm I'm also a, a status Indian, um, originally from Saskatchewan. Um, I, I grew up in Winnipeg, but having when you go up into the north and you live in a lot of these places, you don't actually realize um, what a lot of people are actually dealing with, and everything from issues from housing to dealing with water wastewater issues, employment, all of these things. And one of the things that it comes back to is that quite often is that's when you realize that everything comes back to energy mm -hmm. and everything from technologies that involve um, rapid manufacturing, localized manufacturing, um, clean water development. A lot of these things take thermal energy. They take electricity. They take large amounts of, of power. And you just simply can't have that in a lot of these places where the communities are off grid or not connected to to the continent or to the rest of the continental grid. And that's, I think, in my case, is for me what actually developed my interest in the, the small uh, modular power in these remote locations. And just tell us a little bit more about what originally brought you to the north. Um, in uh, two, uh, sorry, in 1997, um, actually, I was in the Air Force at the time, I was an aircraft maintainer um, in Winnipeg. And one of the things that happened at that time was that uh, the force reduction plan was still running in the mid 90s. Um, and they had brought other employers through uh, to talk to us to try to interest us, interest us in moving on to other opportunities. And one of the ones that had come through was the RCMP. And at the time, I thought I was going to get to, if I thought if I joined the RCMP, I thought I was going to get to wear a dark suit and sunglasses and chase terrorists and uh, work out of uh, work in uh, embassies and things overseas. And as it turned out, that that's not exactly what the job is. <laughs> so what, what was the job? What were you doing? Um, I spent a lot of time in uh, remote communities in the in the north. My first posting was actually Lynn Lake, Manitoba, and I was there for three years. And we had two fly-in uh, communities that we policed out of there as well. Um, it's uh, it, it's quite the eye opener for when you when you grow up living in a large center. In a like in this case here, I know a lot of people won't necessarily consider Winnipeg to be a large city or anything along those lines. But I've had my eyes open since then, and it's it's. You know, to, to go back now and I realize that um, just having the opportunities and the educational um, services, commercial services, all of those things, simply having them available is something that we, we all, quite often we, we take for granted. Um, the current town that I live in right now, when we when I first looked at coming here after I'd left the RCMP. Um, I came here as a contractor to, to work for the First Nation um, 
we drove through town and when we saw the Canadian Tire and the McDonald's and the fact that the town actually had a Canadian Tire and a McDonald's, that was pretty much when we made the decision that we were going to move here. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I've also got some experience in the north. Um, I worked uh, at uh, 64 degrees or maybe 65 degrees, actually, in the in the Peel River watershed in the Yukon Territory. Mm-hmm. Um, seasonally, you know, off and on kind of May till October um, for about three or four years. Um, Local? And, yeah, that, so it was I, I was working. I, I actually ran a trap line for a winter and then uh, I was working for an outfitter. Um, so we had, uh, you know, 40 horses and we trail them into the middle of nowhere from, you know, from the middle of nowhere to even more the middle of nowhere. And, uh, <laughs> it was, I mean, what an eye opener. And I mean, yeah, we, we used, uh, diesel for, um, our generator and we had some propane for heating because we were, um, well above tree line, um, mm-hmm. partially as a function of just altitude. Um, and so we heated a bunch with, uh, propane. There was a, a, a cat a caterpillar uh, truck that had actually sorry not, not a caterpillar truck but a, you know a, a bulldozer that had dragged wood up from probably about thirty kilometers away and we we burned through that whole wood supply over about ten years and so then we had to transition to using propane so anyway it's just you know that kind of um, energy poverty which for me was just it was kind of fun I was a young guy I wasn't this wasn't my life I would go back to the south um, but you, you know, know you I had, know in your case you can always leave. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It was a, it was kind of a romantic escape for me, not not daily life. Right. And, you know, I could yes. still go back to the south and get educated and, you know, enjoy the high energy civilization that, you know, allows medicine to exist and go to medical school and, and everything else. Yeah. So, you know, I have a taste, I guess, of, uh, you know, and also experiencing some of the, the communities. Uh, there's a town called Mayo, which was the, the closest town we were to. They're, they're hooked to the grid, but it's still still pretty limited um you know and then later in life i I lived um just outside of six nations of the grand river which is uh, the largest indigenous reserve in canada Mm -hmm. uh you know it was interesting they had a huge greenhouse that they'd set up um and it was natural gas heated uh but it must have been i mean i'm kind of terrible with my units here but probably a couple acres it was a huge greenhouse and Mm -hmm. i remember it was during uh some of these polar vortexes when it was minus 30 minus 40 outside and uh, it became a community gathering place, right? People would go to this greenhouse. They had, you know, some yoga classes. People would be growing tobacco there uh, for ceremony. There was, you know, obviously they were doing a bit of uh, food security, growing uh, a lot of vegetables and things like that. So it was, uh, that was a bit of an eye opener. And when I think about, you know, my experiences in the North and living in Whitehorse, Mayo, and really remotely, you know, the idea of having plentiful energy and what it unlocks is, is pretty wild. Yes. You, and you really don't, you really do take it for granted. We yeah. all do until yeah. you've seen otherwise. There's a, there's a funny, uh, a funny analogy I heard recently, or just a guy who gave a speech and he said, you know, human beings, we used to enslave each other. Um, and then we enslaved carbon <laughs> and, you know, obviously history is very complex and there's a lot of individual heroic individuals involved in, you know, social progress and in the abolition of slavery and, in, you know, women's rights and feminism. But, Energy also underpins a lot of those successes. Um, you know what? That's actually an interesting point, and that's something that I I had always been I'd been forming an opinion on for quite a few years, and it's it's not a, a not a fully developed opinion, but it's from an economic standpoint. One of the things when you look back over the last hundred hundred and twenty years, the things that have happened is that we've been able to convert energy into work. You know, we've been turning 
coal energy into into engines that were able to actually power mills and and move away from waterways and dams and um, even from the uh, the windmill that we were typically used to seeing seeing somewhere like in Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is in many ways what has allowed this energy to you know the the, the general wealth that we we experience as modern modern population. Um, you just couldn't, you just would not be able to have had it if, if you literally had people sitting there and picking out um, grains of wheat, individually weaving um, sheets of cotton, things like that, where it would have to all be done by hand. And all of these things were, were made possible by the automation and the enslavement of carbon, as you say. You know, but it's the enslavement of energy overall that has interjected into the, you know, displaced a unit, basically a unit of labor or allowed that labor to go elsewhere and be used in other, in other formats. And I think that we're starting to run into a, into a position here now where this is the area where I I still don't have a complete opinion yet on my own, but, you know, we're running into areas now where even artificial intelligence is starting to look like sell everything from self-driving cars to, you know, to legal um, assistance and the like. There are many more professions that seem to be dropping away and I'm not entirely certain. I haven't made a, a full decision on my own if these things have, if this is necessarily a good thing in every state. But, mm. you know, it's definitely, it's something that can't be ignored. And it's something that's going to be very important for a lot of these, you know, a lot of these energy impoverished um, locations and the like. Right, right. You know, and I mean, also, I mean, just things like, you know, the internet uh, connectivity in that degree. I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, in, in Canada, much to our shame, there's still, a large number of indigenous reservations um, and not just remote. I mean, on six nations, which is, you know, 45 minutes from Hamilton, an hour and 20 minutes from Toronto. Um, much of that reserve uh, does not have access to, to clean water. Um, you know, so, so that's an issue that's not just in these rural remote areas, but um, you know, in terms of the, the challenges that are, that are faced and p- potentially resolvable with, with energy or not resolvable without energy, I guess is a better way to put it. Yes. Um, you know, those, those are really, really pertinent. I'm wondering if we can, um, you know, for the sake of this podcast, uh, try and center our analysis, like imagining or, or, or specifying a certain community. I'm not sure if that makes sense to you. Like if we were to choose like a Kaluit or if we were to choose somewhere more remote, um, just to sort of, uh, so that our, our kind of philosophizing is a little more concrete and, and kind of based in a location that people might possibly be able to look up or have some familiarity with. Um, I think in this case, how about we just go with the generalized idea of an Arctic community that has, that's not road or grid connected and it's okay. fly in or sea accessible only during, uh, specific months. And then from there I can use individual, uh, examples in terms of, uh, power generation and consumption with certain ones with, and at the same time, it still keeps us from, uh, yeah, getting perfect. anybody to, uh, too worked up or too concerned about it. So, you know, okay. something we might be no, saying that- about there. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. It makes it more applicable too. So you're saying a flying community, not grid connected. And what was the other criteria? Um, it's sea lift accessible. So that would mean in the spring that they would be able to get a uh, resupply barge. Okay. okay. There are some communities that actually don't meet that criteria and they are completely, uh, they are completely airlift required. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So now we have a kind of visualization of, of the context we're talking about. And, you know, this is really cool. And this is people don't give this a lot of thought, I find. And in Canada, you know, we're just I think it's 90 something percent of our population is just pasted to the U.S. border. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. We have a we have a really large land mass and uh, we really owe it um, to, to the north to be thinking about these issues. So, you know, let's talk about things as they currently are. Right. So 
um, fossil, right? Diesel, biomass. What's what's what are the what does it look like in one of these communities in terms of energy and in terms of the limitations that that constrains and some of the I guess the drawbacks and the benefits. In most of these communities at the moment, um, they're um, almost all of them are, are diesel generation with re- diesel reciprocation. They're not um, they're not they're not a uh, not a diesel steam plant or anything along those lines. That's uh, a lot of them are bunker running bunker fuel, um, diesel C, and a lot of the challenges that they have in these locations trying to keep these these legacy units running is the fact that they have to get a special blend of, of diesel and, and even with this the the bunker fuel range. Um, they have to get an, an Arctic diesel blend. And I know that for, say, the Nunavut Power Corporation, which I believe is Kulik Power now, um, they have to make a special order with with a refinery to get that. Uh, they have to find a refinery that's willing to basically to produce that, that range of uh, Arctic bunker fuel that they need to keep their operations running. Wow. So it's before they even ship it to, to these remote locations, it automatically, it, it's a boutique fuel that they have to that's a relatively small order by you know by what the refineries consider so it's already more expensive um of a fuel before they've even delivered it up to the landed cost to get to many of these communities and i think that that's one of the areas where um you know things like diesel have started to you know everybody's looking for another option other than the, the fact that it's very dirty and it you know it's got a very high transport cost is there like is is local air pollution a big issue? You think about these communities. I mean, they're just they're so remote, and there's high winds and stuff. Is that an is that an issue that comes up? The air pollution issue. It's not all communities, but it's certainly some of them. I've seen some of them. If you stand down, if you stand downwind, um, like the prevailing wind side of where the uh, the diesel generating site is, you can see some of the particulate on the snow cover. And one of the things that does happen is obviously in the spring, when the sun comes up, the the dark soot and the like, it, it melts away the snow in a much quicker fashion. Locally, I don't know if it's a, if it's a direct, um, issue, but it's one of those things that it's definitely a noticeable item that you could see in a more immediate sense. So I certainly, you know, when I was living in the Yukon and Whitehorse, um, because of the, the Yukon river Valley, there's this inversion effect and the, uh, the local government thought for a while that it would be a good idea to sort of be a little more energy independent and use more wood burning stoves in the city. And it's, it's not a small city. I mean, for the North anyway, no, it's not. Yeah. 20, almost 30,000. And uh, so people started installing a lot of wood stoves and the air quality became atrocious because, you know, these inversion effects would come and just, just force all of this sooty smoke down street level and hold it there for weeks at a time. Uh, well, another problem that ends up happening with energy poverty, it's funny that you mentioned wood. Um, one of the communities that, and, I, and again, I, I, I really want to mention it by name, but in this case here, I don't want to like be looking like I'm, I'm poking out some communi- at some other community. Um, there's a flying community in northern Manitoba that to point out how expensive energy is for home heating and the like when you fly into the community as you approach in the airplane it's in almost a perfect circle in every direction six or seven kilometers from the community it look it's just sand and gravel because almost every tree has been cut down in every direction wow for six or seven kilometers and it you can perfectly see the edge of the tree line where people go to cut their wood and this is a small like how many what's the population of this community about 900 people wow I mean, and it reminds, they, you, it reminds you a little bit of Elizabethan England when, you know, they just logged, logged, logged. And, and it was only with the discovery of coal that, that their forests were able to grow back. <laughs> yes, actually, yes. That's a, a good example. And, and 
the thing is people aren't going out and cutting down the trees in a lot of cases because they want to. They're, they're going out and they're cutting down the trees because it, in terms of firewood, it's the only economic uh, source of heat for their homes because to try to heat your home with only electricity would be ridiculous when the, you know, the, even with the subsidized cost being close to 30 cents a kilowatt hour, the real yeah. cost, you know, for the local utility in some cases, it, you know, and this is still what the utility is paying and it's not the overall subsidized cost. So it still could be over a dollar a kilowatt hour. So there's not a lot of incentive to get people to try to heat their homes electrically. Um, if you use diesel, uh, which a lot of people, or propane, which a lot of people too do to, to heat their homes, they'll have a local tank that runs their furnace and the like. Um, it's still very expensive to get it delivered. And handling propane is very difficult. And if you get a year where one of the one of the issues that happens is in so are the northern parts of the provinces now say northern manitoba and the southern parts of the the territories with global warming now is that some years some of these communities don't get a safe ice road and if you don't get an ice road that year that that basically means that everything you need for the year has to be airlifted wow so if you start talking about the cost of fuel or propane and the like if you've got to put it in in the in a cargo aircraft and it, it's it's like a berlin berlin airlift all you know for <laughs> weeks at a time yeah yeah you know and wow. everything that everybody's got got to eat all the fuel they've got to burn if you start trying to get that around your head and start thinking about putting everything in, you know inside of an airplane and flying it somewhere that's a staggering number you know so we have these boil water advisories in so many communities which you know it's a fundamental human right to be able to drink safe water and not be getting sick all the time. I think most of us would agree on that, particularly in the developed world. Um, you know, energy, I think, is similarly, um, there's an argument for it to be a fundamental human right in terms of, you know, and, and you'll see in the, in the South, for instance, you know, if, if there's a people who are in arrears on their hydro bills, you know, it's, they're not allowed to cut it off in the winter as a utility, right? Because it's, it's just seen as that it's so important for, you know, basically survival. Yeah. Um, how are things in the North? Like, are there a lot of examples of like long-term blackouts as a result of interruptions in fuel supply or has the government been fairly successful at managing to, you know, even when they can't get the ice road to the community to haul in the fuel more economically, um, are we succeeding at, at, at least keeping the lights on in these communities or, or are there sometimes running into some major interruptions? Um, I've been pretty lucky at most of the places I've been that with the exception of say, Everybody gets used to the power going out for a couple of hours every now and then in most of these locations because you've usually only got the one large diesel reciprocating generator, like a big caterpillar generator or something like that. And it could be anything from water in the in the diesel and freezing or something along those lines to, you know, a filter getting clogged to all sorts of things that end or some sort of a safety system that kicks the generator out. But most people are used to the power going out for a couple of hours at a time. Um, I have heard of some of the communities where people you know, people have worked and where people live, where they get to the point where they've got to start saying that, okay, we're only turning the power on and maybe only to your side of town for three hours at a time. And they encourage everybody to charge batteries, do whatever it is they need to do to, to deal with all of this stuff because they've got to start rationing the power because they know that they can only bring in seven or 8,000 liters of, of diesel at a time, you know, in, an, in the aircraft, or they only have a negotiated contract for it, or... You know, there, there are many reasons where these where these shortages come from, and it does happen. Fortunately, most of the utilities do do a very good job of making sure that they've got enough uh, fuel on hand. So it's usually not a fuel outage that, that takes down these generators, at least not uh, from what I've heard recently. But um, I do know that it does happen. 
Yeah, yeah. So let's, uh, I think we've painted a decent picture of, of, you know, the region we're talking about, the kind of communities we're talking about, the current sort of energy system that's in place, some of the drawbacks. Let's, let's move to um, talking about SMRs, um, which are, if people don't know, small modular reactors, which are being um, seriously proposed um, as a potential solution to some of these energy woes. Um, you know, I don't want to paint this in totally rosy terms. There's definitely challenges as well with SMRs we'll get into. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have this great presentation called Nuclear North of 60, uh, Jay, where you, you I'm going to post it in the show notes as well. Um, but part of what you do is you go through the, the history of, of, well, nuclear energy in, in, uh, in a lot of detail going right back to some of the early uh, discoveries in physics. Let's kind of jump in um, at that point in your presentation where you start talking about SMRs, though. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to spend too, too long on this, but I think, you know, a good 10 minutes or so would be useful just to, to get a picture of, you know, when, when SMRs originated and what some of the, uh, entertaining stories are in terms of, uh, you know, various iterations and things like that. Well, Chris, I think that, um, in my, and, and again, this comes back to a whole area of opinion as well. Like one of the things that I firmly believe is that. Um, SMRs, one of the very first true SMRs uh, that became a, that was brought out in the same, in that manner when it was, oh, pardon me, when it was brought up, uh, first brought up was the, uh, was an AACL design called the Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, uh, the nuclear battery, and they called it the nuclear battery. And it was a, it was a fissile reactor. It was relatively small and in theory it could uh, fit on a, it could fit in a truck or, or could be delivered. Um, it was interesting in that it used, um, relative, you know, and whether this is the, it's still low enriched uranium, but it's, uh, for a Canadian design, enrichment of uranium was very unusual at all. Right. Um, but it was still 19 and a half percent, uh, low enriched uranium. And it used a, a solid graphite uh, moderator block, and the uh, the coolant system was actually heat pipe, so it didn't have any. Uh, there were no pumps, and there was no moving, effectively no moving parts. And not pressurized, right? Yeah, and it was not pressurized, so it used the heat pipes. The heat pipes are are very common today. A lot of people don't realize it, but every laptop computer, um, pretty much the cooling system and the uh, from the from the CPU to the fan. To your uh, to your heat sink and everything else like that is you know, all the heat's piped away inside of your laptop through a heat pipe. A lot of uh, PC desktop style inside of the cabinets and that. If you get into to the actual cooler to enable to displace the cooler a little bit away from the CPU and get it closer to the outside of the box of the case. A lot right. of these computers they use heat pipes. So heat pipes are actually fairly well, um, fairly common and, and fairly mature technology. Um, what was what's interesting about theirs was that I believe it was about 600 kilowatts um, of electric was the production range they were they were proposing to get out of that uh, unit, and it, the other thing that was also very unique for about it for the time was that it was a sealed uh, reactor in that it would be transported whole to the site, used through its lifetime, and then it would re remain sealed when it was removed from the. From the site my understanding was the original proposal was that it was supposed to be it would be allowed to cool for a few years basically to allow a, a fair amount of decay to occur in the fuel before it was uh placed into a shielded flask and and removed and taken back to uh to its uh probably back, i'm going to guess in this case it would be an aacl site like chalk river or white shell labs right. um in support of the far north and but so I like think, what, 
what's what's old is new or what's new is old, I guess. I mean, there's there's um, a lot of uh, designs that you're hearing about these days. I think um, Oaklo is something that sounds fair or maybe it's not similar, but this idea of a nuclear battery. Um, I think that, that there was this huge heyday of experimentation um, in the very early days of nuclear energy in the in the 50s and 60s, where all kinds of cool concepts were um, were tried out. You know, in your your presentation, um, you talk about um, you know obviously the the naval reactor uh, uh, issue in terms of you know nuclear powered submarines, um, the Nautilus, famously. Yes, 1955. Yeah. I mean, there was plans for an atomic railroad locomotive. Um, there was even plans for nuclear energy to like as a propulsion for aircraft, for God's sake. So yeah, there was a real heyday of innovation. And it seems like the only thing that really made it in a big way was um, was uh, propulsion in terms of, uh, you know, Navy and, and even there was a civilian vessel as well, I think. Right. Yeah, there were a couple of civilian vessels. Um, and again, that comes back to I guess, how you want to define what a civilian vessel is. Um, both the Soviets at the time, they did a lot of work on uh, aircraft propulsion. And in fact, the, the Russians even right now are doing a lot of work on um, on a uh, on isoto isotopic and uh, reactor and micro-reactor uh, propulsed um, aircraft and uh, UAVs as well. That's not, just for, that's not just for space, right? Because a lot of our space probes run off of uh, isotopic um, reactors, right? That's We're talking correct, about yes. flying in the sky. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't like to think about that. You know, if if you have a failed launch or something like that, and you get a rocket that's breaking up on reentry or so, or burning up on reentry and stuff like that, to start asking the question, you know, well, did it have an isotopic battery? Did it have a a, a solid state? Um, fission, fission core on board, you know, and that is one of the things that does happen. Fortunately, it's, you know, none of these things are, you're talking about, you know, it, something you could hold in your hand. They're very, they're very, very small, but, yeah. Yeah. you know, um, and I think just uh, during that 1950s era too, I think that there's the post-war era. I just think that there was so much optimism, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, nuclear could fix everything. It was going to do everything. You had you know, I don't, I don't go into it in a lot of detail in the North of 60 talk, but if you go and look for it, you can find everything from school children being, you know, signing up for uh, low, low, low level of radiation on a daily basis for, you know, what some of the things now that we, we equate with um, almost like some of these ridiculous home remedies and stuff like that. that, that right, you see. right. You, you see yeah. it. Yeah, you go, to your were, you go to your naturopath and, and get a dose of radium or something, right? Yeah, exactly, precisely. So you'd see things like that. There was, I think, that there was a lot of that going on, and it wasn't until, and uh, it wasn't until I think, you know, even before Three Mile Island, and that I can't give you an exact uh, date or a period where probably where a lot of these ideas started falling out of favor. I do think that in a lot of cases, the regulatory agencies, um, you know, looking at things like a, a, a nuclear powered locomotive and things like that. Well, what would happen if that locomotive was, was in an accident? You know, and that's something that's uh, people start asking questions stuff about things like that. And that's pretty quick. People have you, you have to start, you know, turning around and saying that, yeah, no, that's not ever going to happen. Um, so the, so think, the, marine, the marine applications are what's really um, stayed with us then, like nuclear-powered submarines, aircraft carriers, icebreakers, and now even floating um, nuclear reactors. Right? Uh, yes, Russia. the Russians have been very the, the Russians have been very advanced in that area. They've they pretty much always had uh, of one form or another. They've always had multiple um, nuclear-powered icebreakers, 
And when you do think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, there's a lot of areas in even in Canada that we're not able to go just because of the 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 energy cost of breaking up a lot of especially a heavy sea ice and operating in in the Arctic is is very significant. Um, there's you know, a lot of the time too, and this is something I, I was unaware of too, is that on operating on an icebreaker in the Arctic is that they're the vessels, you know, they're great big heat sinks and the like, and they're, they're very cold and they're getting constantly splashed with even the salt water freezes um, below zero once it gets cold enough. And they, they have to go out and constantly de-ice, de-ice the vessel because they can't allow tons and tons of, uh, of wow. ice to form on top of the decks and the rails because it could cause, it leads to instability on the vessel and could cause things like capsizing, interferes with just daily operations on the, on the vessel as well. So when you have when all of your your heat sources and the like and your ability to de-ice the vessel and your propulsion and everything else comes from a, a, a finite amount of diesel fuel on board it becomes very hard to do things like very long distance operations and the like and the the, the russians do things like circumventing uh circumventing uh circumnavigating the their equivalent of um of what of their nor what we would think of as the northwest passage but they they have another uh in the Arctic Ocean as well, they have a uh, an area that they routinely keep clear. Um, I don't believe they do it all year long, but they do it for a much longer portion of the year um, than we do, and they're able to do that because they have a, an active and you know a, an active and mature uh, nuclear powered icebreaker fleet. And with that, they're able to con- be able to conduct um, longer commercial operations in support of their northern communities. Hmm. Okay, so you don't have the ice road, but you can break in on uh, <laughs> with a, with one of these boats and deliver supplies. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk. Uh, moving away from, I guess, the uh, these these examples uh, again, mostly what survived is this kind of marine style um, uh, small modular reactors. There there actually are some precedents, right? Uh, Greenland had a reactor providing power. Um, Antarctica, I believe. Can you go into a few of those examples? Um, the Greenland reactor. Uh, believe that was the uh, that one was uh, an American Army uh, reactor, and I, I believe that it's it was considered to be portable as well, and it was used for uh, for heating a, a, an experimental uh, forward operating site, and it was a um, an underground uh, base actually that was dug into the into the glacier, and throughout that it provided both heat and both heat and electricity for the site and from what i understand it was a uh, relative success um but at the same time too it still leaves uh, a lot of it still leaves a lot of concerns like for instance right now i'm, I'm writing a, a report for um I was, well actually i was writing a report as it turns out i'm not going to get the uh i won't be getting the uh the, the, the grant or i won't be getting hired for it but i was writing a report on the use of uh, small modular reactors in forward uh, military positions and and basically it's it's not a uh, an overly supportive um, slant on that uh, on that report and the reason why is ultimately if you're going to have a nuclear reactor in a forward operating location it's typically going to be pretty high on a target list for for uh, you know for an enemy belligerent there would be some circumstances where you would have a uh, a permanent operating base or a forward known base like uh, for instance resolute bay um not, uh, cfs alert is an excellent location where um it typically it probably wouldn't be directly targeted because the the base is small enough and the settlement is small enough 
However, you are gonna you would end up with other situations where you've got a, a portable reactor that's brought into extremely small locales and say operated near front zone, front line zone. It wouldn't be it what's probably not something that would be tolerated from a strate, uh, strategic point of view by uh, right. by a, a, an opposing belligerent. Right, right. And uh, and Antarctica, I guess they had a system there. Um... I think you said it did uh, desalination, electricity, district heating. This was, I think, more of a research site. Yes, I think that was more of a civil um, operation. I do think that it was administrated and um, and and run by the U.S. Army, but mm-hmm. I don't know in that. I, and in that case, I'm not entirely certain. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, that's a lot of bang for your buck if you're if you're making fresh water heating and electricity and you know you can make probably something pretty pretty comfortable for antarctica in terms of um, well yeah absolutely and and that's the whole thing is that where you come back to energy poverty and the cost of the landed cost of energy and this is what i tell people a lot of times is the fact that people they want to talk about oh well you know i only pay you know even in my location in the north and my uncle lives he lives in the far north and he only pays he pays 36 cents a, a kilowatt hour at the meter at his house, you know, even including the taxes and everything. And so you're, when you, where you get it, you're, you start talking about all these numbers and, you know, 70 cents a kilowatt hour, 80 cents, a dollar 30 and things like that. And the thing is, is that people don't realize how much of a subsidy that there is involving, right. um, you know, power delivered to a household, to a residence. Um, and this, particularly in those locations, there's, there's subsidies on top of subsidies, um, that go into this. There are subsidies that involve everything from the shipment and transport to direct subsidies from the utility. There are territorial subsidies. There are federal subsidies that go into a lot of these things and then in order to make the energy affordable. Um, there have been a couple of, um, over the years, a couple of, uh, you know, Canadian uh, journalists who have done, tried to do studies on this and add up these numbers and to try to find the true rate of of what the real landed cost of power is in a lot of these locations is very difficult to do and it's even harder to do with military operations because when they do everything in-house they're not obviously they're not passing each uh, they're not billing each other or or giving each other the true cost of uh, of having a heavy airlift uh, transport plane come in with a with a full crew and, and operators and the like so it's not a it's a different it's it's a different operation and the the, the true landed cost is probably even higher than two dollars a kilowatt hour which for a lot of other people, uh, you know, who think in terms of megawatts, I realize I'm at the other end of the scale, but that's a $2,000 megawatt hour. Yeah. And I mean, I think just to, for the non-technical people, kind of including myself, I'm just starting to become a little bit energy literate. I think, uh, you know, residential rates in Ontario are kind of 10 to 12 cents per kilowatt hour. So we're talking 20 times the expense. And I mean, people, not a lot of, a lot of people up north are not uh, making juicy wages, right? No, not in that, certainly not in every circumstance, and that's. I guess it depends on you know who you are and where you are, and which yeah. you know in a lot of cases, and that they they have to pay attractive wages in a lot of cases to get you know specialist labor and things like that to move to the region. But at the same time, yeah. too, there are a lot of people who you know who live there who who are from those communities and have been there their whole lives, and they're not you know they're not making you know fifty percent or a hundred percent over the, the what their wage would the wage would normally be if they were working out of, um, say, Toronto or, or Hamilton or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, it, it, the presentation that I saw from you, I think it was prepared uh, around 2007, 2008. 
And I mean, that was an interesting time for energy in general. Um, oil reached $147 a barrel in 2007. Um, you know, it's just for comparison, it's $48 today. Yes. Um, and I think there was a real sense that we were heading for a bit of a nuclear renaissance, you know, and, and it, it is interesting, like, you know, whenever there's energy security issues like the, uh, the OPEC oil crisis, or for instance, you know, small island nations or large island nations, even like Japan or, I mean, South Korea is effectively an island because of being attached to North Korea on a peninsula. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> these places have favored nuclear when they don't have fossil, basically, right? Yes. Um, and then you have other jurisdictions like Australia, which just burns coal like crazy, and they've banned nuclear. Um, so, you know, it seemed like there was a, you know, we were kind of peak oiling and running out of fossil. And so there was this potential for a, a nuclear renaissance, just out of pragmatics, like we need energy, and um, yeah. <laughs> we're running out of fossil. I mean, do you think that, um, and, and that obviously, you know, these high prices, $147 a barrel, one could only imagine what that was doing to, you know, the already tight margins of supplying energy and power in the north. Um, do you think like the shale gas boom and, and the drop in the price of oil is disincentivizing this move towards potentially using SMRs in the north? Um, do you know what? I don't think so. And I think the reason why is because of the fact that for the same reason, one energy security, like you're mentioning in that, um, one of the, the things when I start talking to people and, that, and I tell them that in the who, people who are from these communities or in these in these communities, the utility operators and the like, that these units will go in effectively with their own fuel supply for, and depending on on which technology is chosen and who they go with, um, from three to seven years at a time, uh, without having to worry about refueling or having to you know replenish the unit. Um, you know, that's a major issue for a lot of people because there's, there is a lot more concern in a more in a very direct sense about things like global warming, um, dealing with things like the, the loss of, uh, of reliable ice roads. Um, uh, there's concerns about, you know, like you were saying with um, you know, OPEC and, and, and other things. I don't think we're going to see another major oil spike probably ever again in our lifetime, personally. Yeah. Um, my like my understanding is that I have friends out west and that people I've known that are that were towards the Dakotas and south uh, south Manitoba and that that were that fracking is pretty much in the in the in its death knell they're pretty much wrapping it up and, and getting getting ready to shut down because it's just the cost of recovering that oil uh, with fracking and also the um, it, it, it doesn't have a very positive uh, social um, connotation as well it's not something that people people like and especially stuff you can start getting stuff where you if you've ever seen one of those videos of somebody um burning the setting the water from their uh, kitchen tap on fire yeah yeah, yeah you, so those things like that they don't that's, uh, a very, that's a very powerful image for sure and i mean the earthquakes and uh you know the potential for groundwater contamination etc yeah yeah so it's not a very po it's not very popular in that in that yeah. uh, in that way um there have been a couple of communities as well that I've spoken to. And then I've, and in some cases when they're, you know, when they are so small, um, you start getting uh, demand down, you start some of these really small communities that might only be two or 300 people um, that don't have a road or in some cases, you know, and I've even told them, I said, well, you, you know, maybe you want to find a different fuel, maybe start considering um, there have been some promising developments and things like uh, metallic hydrogen and high density, uh, some of the other, you know, high densification of, um, you know, liquefied natural gas and things like that, um, that maybe they do want to consider going to, um, to small renewables and things like that, um, backed up by it, 
backed up by their diesel. And in this case, what they're actually doing with these small renewables is they're displacing the diesel. They're displacing the fuel, the funeral, the, the funeral. They're displacing the fuel that they're that they're uh, that they're burning. But the 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 diesel um, generator is always there to take up the slack in the in the in the periods when the uh, the units come down. The one thing I have cautioned a few people to be careful of is don't be oversold on some of these units because um, you get into some of these these locations and that with some of these uh, giant wind turbines and I've, I know this from talking to a couple of uh, First Nations um, out west is the they have a lifespan um, you know that depends on the on the environment that they're installed in they have hydraulic fluid on board they have issues with everything from uh, having to keep the blades heated uh, to be de-iced to overspeed issues and high winds. Um, and, you know, I've, I've talked to one gentleman here who installs, uh, his opinion is that he installs uh, wind turbines in, and it was a First Nations uh, gentleman. He was telling me, he said that if you can't, his opinion is, is if two people in a pickup truck can't install it and can't take it down, then it's too big. And I let him explain it to me. And he's, you know, even though I, I understand the argument for having the very tall uh, wind turbines and the like, it's basically an, uh, an issue over capacity factor and being able to, ex to access the, uh, you know, the prevailing winds and the stronger winds at higher, at higher altitudes. But at the same time, too, they end up in a position where the conditions in a lot of these locations wear them out faster. And, you know, this is where we live in interesting times in any case. And, that, I, and I've got to be careful because I'm under NDA about a couple of these things. And, but I do think that we will see some, some diesel displacement type operations going in the smaller communities. But in communities that they start needing more than 500 kilowatts or their peak demand is, is creeping up into the range of, of, of a full megawatt in that, I do definitely think that small modular reactors are the way to go, especially once you bring in the reactor and you're also providing the, all the you know, the living space heating for a lot of those communities as well. Yeah. 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 You can't, you can't do that very effectively with renewables given the intermittency and then just electric heat is, uh, is pretty expensive. If you can, if you can just heat thermally, I think that's probably a much better way to go. I mean, I did see there was a, a community in Alberta, an indigenous community where they installed a, a pretty large, I, don't, I forget the exact, uh, you know, the exact size of the solar farm, but, it, you know, there was a lot of hype in the media about it. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the media tends to, to sort of gobble up renewable stories um, rather uncritically. But I was just thinking like, you know, like the capacity factor, you know, <laughs> this was, I think, probably north of north of uh, 55 anyway. And the, the capacity factor has just got to be dismal in the winter, obviously. And then mm -hmm. in the summer, I your energy needs are, are, you know, they're still there, definitely, but they're going to be a lot lower. Um, yeah, people are running their air conditioners flat out um, just south of the, of the border of the territories, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, it, it does seem very limited. I, I get the argument about some fuel sparing. I, I wonder how significant that is. I guess it really depends on the location and, you know. This is only my own opinion, and I, I just want to be clear on that. It's yeah. my opinion that if you're not in a location where the, the, the fuel is either coming once a year by sea lift or it's not being airlifted in i don't and i don't think that the uh fuel displacement argument has a uh, has an economic uh benefit yeah yeah and in places where they do have ice roads and the you know that that's several months a year that they do have access and they're able to bring it in the the the, the cost difference in being able to deliver uh fuel to a lot of these locations is you know is is so much different than trying to 
to get everything in on a, a one-time sea lift or, you know, in those ranges and that, or even having to airlift it in is very, it's, it's very significant. So we're going to talk now, I think we'll shift to, we've been beating around the bush. I mean, I think we've, we've uh, established some really good um, background on the issues, um, but let's get into um, the benefits and the challenges of uh, SMRs in the, in the far north. Um, so I think we've, we've definitely talked about electricity, um, district heat. Um, we haven't talked about synthetic hydrocarbons, and I do want to go there. Um, but let's let's just start with, you know, maybe imagining this community that has, we were saying it's flying only, um, it's obviously off grid and with or without sea access partially part of the year. I can't remember your, your criteria, but let's let's imagine that community and just let's let's go with the ideal scenario. Like what's the kind of utopian scenario that an SMR could bring to that community? And then we'll go into some of the challenges that that are faced. I think in the ideal case, um, and again, this is going to be all about scale. But the ideal case is that you're going to have an, an SMR that can come into these communities um, that can that can be installed. Um, and in, in, in which case, depending whether it's a power purchase arrangement or the, uh, the local, I don't see a lot of cases where I think that local communities are going to directly purchase their own reactor um, just because I don't think that that would be financeable and I don't think that the regulator would be very uh, I think it would be hard to prove a lot of conditions to the regulator that people would need to see so I think you're going to need to see a, a larger utility owning and operating these things or some sort of sort of a uh, power purchase arrangement with um, with an, with an but, existing company but yeah paint me a picture like less of the like we'll get into some of the the regulation issues but like just paint me this picture of what a community could look like we kind of know what they do look like right now in terms of <clears throat> some of the energy poverty issues we discussed you know defense forestation yeah. around the community so you know just just uh, be a salesman for a second i know that you're a <laughs> not a salesman um but yeah give us give us the brightest rosiest picture and then we'll we'll try and take that apart a little bit in our next little section here okay what i think you're going to see is definitely with one of the things with uh with having energy with having plentiful energy is that the fact is that the overall cost of it will drop and one of the things that comes with that is that you've you know you're going to have increased consumption, you'll have lower cost um, to consumers, lower cost to commercial operators. Um, and in terms of heating, you're going to have a lower cost in terms of heating. So that's immediately a, a major benefit for everybody who's there. One of the things that comes from these other these other benefits of the lower cost, and in particular, when you've got time of time of use, things that come in along those lines, um, greenhouses, you're going to see in pretty much every circumstance, you're going to see greenhouses when there's accessible electricity and plentiful electricity and heat available at, uh, you know, at, available at a reasonable rate. And the nice thing about greenhouses is that they bring in employment. They're an immediate employer. You don't have to have a nuclear background. You don't have to be a technician of any sort. It tends to be something that can be taught out right away. There's an improvement in terms of of lowering the, the cost of food in the community, an overall improvement in cost and the, the benefit in nutrition to the low, to the people who were there. Um, we talked about quality of water. Well, I mean, you can run you could run UV lights like throughout the winter as well, so you could run that greenhouse year round, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You you would run it year round. Um, yeah. And you know, another thing too is in terms of water quality. If you've got enough energy, if you have enough heat and enough electri electricity and the, the right filters and everything else like that, the right technology, you can take the, the, the dirtiest, most disgusting water and turn it into the cleanest 
you know, mo you know, desirable water that's available. And it is, it's, it's a, it's an argument of energy and you need to have that energy to be able to power those, those technologies that clean the, that clean the water. So you have improved immediately. You have improved water, uh, available for the community for consumption. Um, and you mentioned earlier there that, you know, clean water, drinking water should be, you know, uh, a human right, um, you know, as well should be, and electricity and energy becomes part of that because heat and, and electricity are things that you require to make it, to be able to clean up the water properly right. on the back end, processing the water from these communities. Um, I don't want to, like, I don't want to, again, I don't want to be negative about the way that a lot of these communities are run and things like that. But the water treatment in many cases is pretty much just effectively a, just a direct lease release to the environment. It's, uh, you know, processing might just be screening, um, at the very, or some sort of, uh, agitator or, or at, you know, in some of the best cases, but the, the, the actual processing of sewage and the like, and the, and the water on the back end from the drain is not, is not well looked after um, in a lot of the cases. So you have a, an improved situation for many of these communities. And also too, as, as these communities and the population in the, a lot of these places is growing, you're going to need more capacity for these things. You're you, gonna you, need- You can just basically, I, I think, I don't know if I understand this correctly, but in terms of like waste water and solids, you can just basically boil it if you have enough heat, right? And sterilize it? Yep. Is That's that what my, Yeah. Yeah. If, if you have enough heat, yeah, you could, you could boil it, but you could also, if you have enough processing, if you have enough energy, you can run, um, some of the, some of the waste processing plants and that, like they, they basically, they do everything from milling it down to making sure, because there's a lot of, uh, things beyond just usual human waste that get dumped into, into toilets and into the drain system. Um, it's an unfortunate, uh, reality, but you know, you end up yeah. with everything from latex to plastics and things like that being, um, possibly released. And that gives you the, the, the ability to try to treat that water and to, um, you know, and as you say, to heat it, to, you know, to be able to do those things. Um, another thing, uh, drink coming back. And again, I know I just talked about drinking water, but, um, seawater desalination, if you're, if your access to water is, if you're directly on the ocean, having, you know, salination may be the, the best place to go for, for drinking water for the community. Um, and there are some technologies that come along with this, with uh, the seawater processing and that where I've, I've been contacted by companies that want to propose doing things like um, literally mining gold from seawater. Um, if they had enough, if they had enough energy and what it comes down to is that their process um it's not electrolytic, but they have a, they have other processes. I've seen another company that, that proposed mining, uh, uranium from seawater, um, zinc. Uh, there's a number of these, these processes and the like that, you know, if you're going to be bringing, bringing the water in and treating it in any, in, in any case that this might also be another value added benefit to the community or another. Yeah. I think something that's interesting is, um, you know, I, I had this interview with Paul Accioni, who's the, the past president of the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers. And, you know, he was just saying like Ontario is, is just different than most other grids in the world. We have a very clean energy grid. And so we often have this mentality of conservation, right? And of course we should have LED bulbs and well-insulated buildings, but we don't need to be cheap with the excess clean energy we have, right? Because demand varies throughout the day and things like nuclear are just kicking out baseload. And so he was like, basically, you could take the, you know, when, when electrical demand is low, you have all this basically free, totally clean electricity, and you can divert that to 
um, a lot of really cool stuff. Like you can decarbonize your heating, you know, just by heating electrically or doing your water heating electrically, or yep. you know, you, you can run it like hydrogen production. Or there's there's all sorts of cool things you can do when you have this plentiful energy. And I think because we're so used to thinking in terms of like fossil or, or burning wood, you know, when I'm when I'm running a wood stove in in uh, my trapping, you know, prospector tent in the Yukon. I mean, I need to be warm enough, but I'm also thinking about how much wood I got to cut and split. And I'm, I'm trying to be a little stingy too, right? But you, you don't, <clears throat> you know, if a community has something like this and it's it's sufficiently powered, I mean, you can do a lot of cool shit. Like, you, <laughs> you know what I mean? And you don't you don't need to be kind of stingy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm th- this greenhouse, again, I keep coming back to this. This was again at Six Nations, this huge greenhouse that just became such a cool kind of gathering point. You know, this, you know, you're in the middle of winter. It's, it's, you only had a few hours of sunlight a day. I mean, sorry, this is Southern Canada. So you, you know, you got eight hours or whatever, but it was bright, uh, warm, uh, inviting space, you know, um, you know, you could have, you can have a hot tub going. I mean, there's just all kinds of things that, that you can start imagine, imagining doing. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that, um, you know, these Northern communities are, are places where there's really high levels of, of suicide and things, for instance, but energy, I think, can just be uplifting in that sense of giving people a, a whole variety of things they can dedicate themselves, even just having reliable internet so that you can be looking into all these all these things that you can do with this extra energy that you have. Um, I, I think it's potentially very, very exciting and, and has, you know, just beyond some of the benefits we're talking about, just can deliver a bit of hope as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it's and this is the other thing too, is that when you have all these excess, when you have all this plentiful energy, um, you know, I was talking about, the desalination, um, you know, capture of minerals from water and things like that. Well, those are all employers. And all of a sudden now you've got a, a position where you don't, you know, there's a possibility that you can stay in your community. Um, you know, there's a possibility for work. It's You don't end up in a situation where you've got a community with an 80% unemployment rate and perhaps you've grown up not ever known, knowing anybody who's ever had a job. Um, you know, that is a huge uh, mental health benefit uh, to have purpose. You get everything from, you know, new security operations. And what I was mentioning before about uh, hydrogen, we haven't even gone there. Hydrogen is such a huge um, power sink that in the off hours, the, you know, you could probably take between 80 and 90% of whatever, you know, these plants are producing and directly put it into electrolyzers or even high temperature steam electrolysis and the like, which is um, one of the current projects being developed by INL right now and Excel Energy. Um there are some very amazing technologies that are coming around in terms of uh, dealing with hydrogen. Um, what, even, would you, what would you use hydrogen for in, in a remote community? You know what? There's always going to be things where you're going to have local uh, fleet operations and it liquefied. Airbus right now is developing, um, you know, they've got three different transport aircraft types that they're they're planning to put out uh, in 2022 as uh, as an option to purchase that run on liquid hydrogen. It would immediately lower the cost of uh, of an airline flight, say from the capital Callaway to one of these outlying outlying communities, if they didn't have to carry the fuel going both directions. The fuel that they had to purchase in Callaway that was brought in a barge uh, once per year that was already a premium cost. Um, the cost to fly from Callaway to say Resolute Bay um, in an economy seat on a seat sale probably costs more than it does say to fly from Toronto to Frankfurt on any given day of the week and suddenly being able to reduce these uh, even just air travel costs that that lowers the price of everything from goods that simply can't be under any circumstance can't be manufactured locally um 
this, this is a really out of date stat, uh, again, from your presentation, I think, prepared in 2008. But uh, in 2007, the territory of Nunavut spent a quarter billion dollars, almost 237 million on fuel and fuel subsidies. That's yes. wild. Yeah. And, and the population at the time, I think it was what, 29,000? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so on a per capita basis, when you start looking at, and that's just, that is just the, the effectively the energy budget and the source on that was actually, yeah, that was the Canadian press that uh, did that investigation. And it's very hard to track down where all of this money gets assigned, gets, comes from and gets assigned to. And it's hard to track things like when you get um, cargo vessels and things like that, they get direct subsidies for their, for their shipments and they're carrying fuel, but it's not directly assigned to the fuel. Well, that's, in you know ultimately that the only reason for that shipment is fuel in a lot of cases so that's a direct energy subsidy so right. it's it's hard to um it is hard to properly tabulate all of those yeah so i mean just to summarize again uh so this rosy picture is um you have plentiful electricity and you can do everything all the wonderful things you can do with electricity you have your internet maybe you can do some 3d printing you can yeah i mean just have the lights on all the time you know you can do lots of cool things right yeah um, we have uh district heating um the potential to run greenhouses run uv lights for you know basically hydroponics growing all year round um we can make hydrogen and maybe even synth fuels for aircraft and i think you know that the kind of fourth thing that really stands out for me is that story you said of that that community that had cut firewood and you, how far were you saying like when you flew over it it's a few kilometers to it's the six or seven kilometers from the front you can see when you fly in you can see the you can see the houses uh, and it's a couple hundred houses you can see all the local like the the band office and and you can see the airport and the like and when the aircraft is circling on, on the approach pattern of that you you can just see it in every direction it's just gravel and they wow. like i was saying it's not it's not because they're disrespectful of nature it's not because they're you know, not because they hate trees, you know, it's because of the fact that that is, it, it's just so expensive to heat homes and to try to stay warm. Let's, let's shift gears for a second and just talk about this, the, the appeal to nature or the naturalistic fallacy, right? Because this is something that I think um, tends to be a bias against nuclear because people say rightly or wrongly, you know, I mean, so burning, burning firewood in that setting, that's natural. So it's good. And clearly we have an example there where no, you know, you have the six kilometer radius of essentially desert around the community because that's all they can use. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, wind turbines and solar panels are natural. I mean, they harness a natural phenomenon, but they're, they're made out of metals and materials. And I think people don't appreciate the amount of maintenance that has to go into uh, certainly wind turbines, as you're saying, with like hydraulic uh, fluids and, and gear boxes and everything. And then solar, I mean, you got to clean off the panels and whatnot. Um, not not huge amount of work, but it's it's there. And, and basically, again, they're harnessing natural phenomena, but but there's there's they're not natural in and of the themselves in terms of the collectors. Um, but nuclear is, is thought of as as not being natural. Um, can you just as a really brief anecdote, just tell us about Oklo? Um, the Oklo uh, effect was an area in uh, Africa, and what it was is it's uh, in modern-day Gabon. And what ended up happening there was that uh, at the beginning of the universe, uh, uranium-235 has a, has a half-life, and it's the fissionable isotope that's in uranium that, um, you know, uh, that is fissionable, and that's where the, the energy directly comes from. Um, but what happened was is that several hundred million years ago is that water in this case we you know whether it's light water it's just natural water from the environment it leaked down into the into the 
into the ground um, where the uranium was present in relatively high concentrations. And it actually caused naturally occurring vision um, that occurred there. And the way that they determined this was by the, the half-life, the isotopes that they found and the content of the half-lives that they found them in um, at a modern-day uranium mine in Oklahoma. And they were able, at the time, they had thought that there was some sort of um, nefarious uh, fission experiments going on or something along those lines. But it was when they actually worked out the age of the isotopes, which have very predictable um, decay rates, they were able to, to determine um, the, the age of when this fission occurred. Wow. And it was two or 300 million years ago. So, so it was the world's first natural <laughs> fission reactor. Yeah, the first, at least the first one we know of. The conditions okay. all have to be right. You have to have, you have to have, you would have to have high uh, uranium um, ore contents. You would have, and it would timing wise, and the the right amount of water would have to have to leak into yeah. the ground. But yeah. Okay, well, that, that's just a nerdy anecdote. Let's not get too sidetracked there. Yeah. Um, we we painted this rosy picture. Um, we're about to get into the challenges, but just first off, I mean, you've, you've given this talk a lot. You visited a lot of these communities. When you go to these communities, are people uh, interested in, in sort of what you're describing? Is there, how is it received? The way it's usually received, to be honest, is that I get probably 15% of everybody who actually comes to see the, the talk wildly excited about it in every regard. You get a very silent group that is very concerned in many cases they're quiet they don't say anything and then usually end up with a, a number of other people who are extremely anti um anti-nuclear in any case or they they bring up um arguments or and one of the things you always deal with is it's oh well, you can't have a reactor here no matter how small it is because it, it can explode like a nuclear bomb and that's you know i've gotten to the point now where i've i've gotten so good at like i can grab a whiteboard and just explain to people that no a, a reactor can't explode like a nuclear bomb and then right. you always get the oh well what happened at chernobyl and they said well it was actually a steam explosion and, you know, I can go through the, you know, the background at Chernobyl and it's, well, it's just as bad. And it's like, well, Chernobyl was a, a you know, a 1200 megawatt plus reactor. And we're talking about in a lot of cases, you know, between one and 20 yeah. uh, megawatts in a lot of these cases. And, you, you know, they're trying to explain to people the scale of what happened and, um, you know, some of the other accidents since then and that. And then, but a lot of times what you run into is that there's always going to be a group of people who are terrified of, of, of radiation. Yeah. Um you know, I know uh, in my my home uh, home community back in the, like my my home reserve back in Saskatchewan, I've chatted with people who are, you know, they're they're terrified of the fact that Cameco does you know uranium mining, and they're, they want to know why does they do it here. And I try to explain to them that's like the well, it's a you know Saskatchewan even just in the in the in the bedrock and the ground, you know, throughout most of this region has very high concentrations of uh, uranium. And trying to explain to people that you know that those benefits and the reason why it's like that. Um, well, you always end up with people at um, at when you go and give uh, give a talk about small modular reactors or about alternate energy or about you know you know any of these things that you start talking about. You always get a, a group of people that are always going to not not accessible. They're you know they're they're not they're not willing to listen in a lot of cases. You know or or even in some cases they maybe even have some uh, alternate or uh, alternate theories about uh <laughs> um i don't want to necessarily you know say the word you know use the word uh 
you know, conspiracy theorists, but there are a number of people out there that they're worried about everything from small modular reactors, that there's a radio, uh, just by being there, there's a radioactive shine um, that goes through everything and just anybody nearby will, um, you know, end up getting cancer or die in, in one way or another. Um, and a lot of these people, sometimes they're the ones who come along and, and that immediately tell you, and it's like, well, what about all those babies that get all the, the health de defects and that people who live, you know, within 50 kilometers of nuclear power plants. And, right, right. and it's like, and I, and I said, I live within 50 kilometers of nuclear power plant. And I said, I don't know anything of what you're, what you're speaking about. And I tell people, I said, like, listen, I used to work directly inside of, of, you know, the, I worked in fuel handling in a can do power plant, um, you know, for 12 years and, once now it's it's a very different thing once you've seen it in real life once you've seen stuff in person you know and it's the the thing is the unfamiliar is what's scary and i think for a lot of people that you know it it, it give them gives them some you know some purpose and some value that they're uh, you know they're they're standing up to the to the big corporation or that they're doing this or that or the or the other thing but in a lot of cases these are the the same people who you know, they, they don't take uh, flights and airliners because they're worried about cosmic radiation. They don't want houses with basements because they're worried about radon. You know, they, they do things like they take out their granite countertops because they're worried about the radiation from the granite in their countertops. Right, right. And, you know, and I mean, it's such an error in, in sort of relative risk assessment. And I mean, human beings just cognitively were not well set up to be analytical, right? And that's why it takes, you know, scientific training and you know, statistics and epidemiology to really learn how to think really clearly and, and assess risk. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest things I see in, in medicine. But, you know, I had um, a, a fellow physician on a little while ago, and we were talking about the relative risks of, of radiation compared to air pollution. And, you know, all of uh, London, England would be evacuated uh, in terms of the risk from air pollution and the number of, uh, you know, the time that you could expect to be subtracted from your, your potential lifespan by air pollution is far less than that you'd get if you're living even in the most contaminated region of Fukushima. But, you know, I think popular culture, fear of nuclear weapons, Godzilla, um, you know, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of misinformation that has really uh, shaped people's perceptions and, and led to some strong cognitive biases. And, you know, what's available to people when they think about radiation is, is pretty terrifying, except yeah. and except, though, when it comes to medical imaging and, you know, radiation treatment for cancer, which is, I think, just absolutely fascinating when the benefit accrues to you individually, all of these fears go out the window. Right. And I have parents that are begging me to, to scan the brain of their their child when they have a minor fall. You know, and, and these same people would probably be, you know, completely terrified about, you know, a minor nuclear incident at a power plant. Not that, mm -hmm. I mean, not that it happened very often, right? But, no. you know, the, the kid is going to get, you know, two C, uh, two millisieverts from the CT scan. Um, you know, and, and anyway, I mean, it's it's just it's very interesting. And it's, it's I think this failure of, of the human imagination to to be as concerned about collective benefits um, and weighing risks when it's a collective benefit like clean air or, you know, cheap abundant available energy that can allow kind of local prosperity or even things like vaccination, right? Where it's like, yeah, I'm going to have a sore arm and maybe a, you know, a little minor fever. Um, and, and, you know, the benefit is probably not going to be for me. It's going to be for, you know, the vulnerable elderly person or the baby, right? Um, things like, you know, for the flu vaccine, but we have a hard time. And I think we really need culture um, that, you know, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit, I'm going off on a tangent about vaccination, but I mean, there's good stuff circulating with COVID right now where health workers are kind of rolling up their sleeve and sharing on social media, getting the shot. And I saw a picture of Elvis historically getting the polio shot. And it's just like, that should be cool, right? We should yeah. be 
invited to do things that you know are collective that are pro-social behaviors that that benefit everybody and and i think yeah that's my little soapbox speech i'm gonna back off now well actually one of the one of the things that um it's interesting because I, I don't have a lot of the i there's nothing holding me back now but i'm still just going to be uh relatively nameless about one utility that uh that sponsored a an event that we were at and it, it was interesting because before we even i had never even heard of this as a thing before but before we went in they were absolutely completely specific with us that we will not talk about radioactive emissions from coal power plants hmm. and we were the whole room and th these were all all people you know like proponents of uh, nuclear energy and the like and the whole room basically just went silent silent we all kind of like looked at each other there were a couple of people who who knew and after the gentleman you know he moved on to other topics and later on we had a discussion about it and, and there were a couple of people who were informed but one of the things i didn't know was that the emissions of uh, radioactive material in particular the particulate that came from coal power plants that weren't well scrubbed and depending on the source of the coal and i'll leave it to your imagination as to uh you know which provinces produce um uh, coal ash with a large amount of your naturally occurring uranium and radium in it <laughs> yeah um but there are there was one company in particular uh, that had reached out to me and they wanted my assistance in trying to get um, some information about uh, the coal tailings at some of the coal power plants um, in Western Canada, and you know what the uh, what the radium and uranium contents were because they wanted to buy the coal ash from this wow. major utility to mine wow. it for uranium. Wow. And what ended up happening was that they had told me that everything was going well when they were talking to this major utility, and then all of a sudden they went quiet. They went they just dead air. They said they didn't right. stop returning their phone calls, emails, <laughs> letters, and, you know, and the, again, one of the things that uh, I, I was able to find out some information, um, I have lots of family in Western Canada and the like, and I was able to find out some information, and there was a shockingly large amount of uranium and radium that was content that was present in this coal ash, and they were very concerned about um public relations yeah in public relations about the yeah because if you've ever been um one of the things growing up in manitoba is that manitoba is almost completely hydroelectric um, there's almost no coal generation there there's almost uh, even the last coal plants i believe uh, there's one or two and i think it might only be about 90 megawatts worth um has been converted to to gas but um one of the things i didn't know until i you know i met my wife who lived you know, she's from Southern Ontario and from Oakville and, you know, going around Toronto and that is that, you know, you get a good rainstorm and stuff like that back in the 90s and the early 2000s, you could still end up with a bunch of soot um, on your car that was basically, it It was coal ash, it was pollution. Yeah. You know, from, the, from some of the power plants that were still operating at the time. And, you know, I had no idea, but effectively one of the things that comes from that is that even with coal even with coal power plants and people are not wanting to switch over or considering switching to other things they're being exposed to a you know surprisingly large amount of what is effectively fallout um depending <laughs> maybe, you know in terms of radiation and it, and again it comes wow. a large part of it comes back to how well the coal power the, the coal power plant is their exhaust is scrubbed and the original source of the coal that's fascinating. <laughs> coal coal plant fallout is probably more significant than nuclear weapons fallout on a on a global scale. I mean, certainly locally, if you're downwind of a coal plant. I remember uh, I did uh, my medical training in in Hamilton, and uh, it was around 2007. 
Um, so there was still a lot of coal on the grid, but also the, uh, the coal used at the steel mills. And uh, I lived right under the escarpment. So the air would come and I think drop a lot of the particulate before it kind of went over the mountain, as it's affectionately called in Hamilton. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, I mean, my windowsills were, were black, you know. And yeah. uh, I mean, uh, yeah, so I remember kind of just running a cloth along there once a week. And it was, yeah, just covered in, in ash. It's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so- another one of these individuals that had come to my, like I, I did some research on that, on this one individual after the, the discussion that I had. And she had, it, it's gone now, but the, the, the video she had on YouTube is that she was in Collingwood. And she had this cheap uh, radioactive meter she bought on eBay. And she was pointing it in the direction of uh, of a nuclear power plant on the on Lake Huron, which was a hundred kilometers away, right. and because it was it was clicking and it was counting stuff, she was saying, "Look, you can see the radiation from you know it's a hundred kilometers away and it's it's going over here and it's like, you know." And then it, it was I did see in the comments below that there there were several people who pointed out that that's the natural background radiation where you happen to be, you, you know, that you don't yeah. live in an absence of radiation either. But at the time, she had herself convinced that the nuclear power plant 100 kilometers away was, you know, effectively shining radiation on them in Collingwood. No, I mean, the ironic thing about the coal thing is even even if you had a large uranium and radium content in it and you've got sort of that nuclear fallout from coal ash, that's still not, you know, relatively, that's not what's going to get you whatsoever, right? It's it's this 2.5 micron particulate that gets in your lungs, scars your lungs, crosses the, 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 the vessels into the, into the blood vessels and deposits all throughout your vascular system. And we're learning more and more about air pollution, but I mean, it's a major cause of uh, myocardial infarctions, of strokes, of other vascular disease. Um, and I mean, you can, it's not hard to imagine when you think about the equivalent of, you know, smoking a pack of cigarettes a day from some exposures to, to particulate. And certainly, I mean, I've, I've never been a smoker, but I, uh, you know, when I, my time up in the Yukon, I was, uh, I was cooking on fires all the time and uh, yeah. you know I, I probably got a five or ten year pack, pack year history we call it you know the equivalent of smoking a pack a day for a year <laughs> let's, let's shift gears because jay i mean i love talking to you you know this this could go on we could do this for a few hours i think yeah i do just want to close off we've painted this rosy picture of you know smrs and what they could do for the north um it's complicated though right so let's talk about the catch or some of the challenges um and I think, you know, um, cost, we've talked about the cost of, of getting fossil fuel in and out. Um, certainly with any nuclear build, it's, it's you know, these upfront capital costs. Once things are installed, stuff gets really cheap. Um, but yeah, walk us through some of the financial challenges, I guess, to start. Um, well, some of the financial challenges is that when I talk to some of these companies that, that have had, you know, they've got ideas that they want to get into uh, SMRs or they've got an SMR design and they want to go to the, to the far north and to, and to remote communities. Well, let's, you know, to be honest, the reason that the thing that's attracting them there is the high cost of power and energy. And in a lot of cases, they don't have a lot of experience there. When you start talking to them they, and you ask them about, you know, you know, they've got a containment design or they've got this or they're going to put it in a silo underground and you start asking, okay, well, where's the concrete going to come from? And I'm like, oh, well, we'll hire a local company. And I'm like, no, there is no local, co- there is no local, you, there's no ready mix company. <laughs> you know, <laughs> try, you have to explain this to people and, you know, say like, and you start looking at how they're going to, oh, they're going to put the, they've got a larger design and it's got a containment dome that they're going to put on. And I'm like, well, how are you going to get this dome on top of your, on top of your building or your containment? And, and they're like, oh, well, we'll hire a crane. And where's the crane coming from? You know, you have to, you have to point stuff out to that, you know, and I don't like to say that I like, I I crush people's dreams, but I tell them quite often why their design won't work or why their numbers for construction are are so far off, 
off base, that it's right. it's not possible that they're going to be able to do um, what they're planning to do at the numbers that they're hoping to get in at. Um, that is one of the major factors, I think, in a lot of cases uh, in terms of the cost to build these things, so that so many of them have been, have been grossly undercalculated for what they're really going to cost. And that is a part of the business case. It doesn't make it impossible. It doesn't say that it's not a, a workable idea, but it is something that it needs to be looked at in a lot more detail, depending on where you're going to go into. Um, and it sounds like it's something that needs to be repeated over and over again. I mean, the, the initial builds are going to be expensive, but if you have kind of one design that you've picked and you have like one company that learns to kind of specialize in this and learns through doing, um, you know, it, it, it'll be able, you know, we have a lot of, you know, remote communities that could benefit. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I think there's one of the problems I see is just in the SMR world, there's, there's, it's great. I mean, there's so many new ideas and designs, but I, I really worry about, you know, just getting efficient because we're going to need to pick one or two designs and go gangbusters on them for, for there to be this benefit of the economies, not of scale, but economies of number, right? I agree. One of the things I would like to see is with a lot of these SMR companies is for them to uh, maybe start talking to each other a little bit more and to team up a little bit more to standardize things like the auxiliary side of their plant or, you know, the, the high temperature, you know, because some of these units are higher temperature, uh, gas cooled reactors, liquid metal, um, liquid sodium plants, relatively high temperature plants. And to look at what are they going to be using for the auxiliary side of the plant? How are they going to be converting that heat into electricity? Well, you know, maybe that's something that if it was standardized um, or they had a, a relatively you know, small group of, of um, suppliers that were already pre-approved and knew how to do this and were familiar with operating in those locations, it would be uh, definitely a benefit. And I think that, it, that also things like that would be... Um, it would be more comfortable, more acceptable to a lot of the, the local community members as well when they see some of the, the, the regular engineering companies that come in to do things. Now, that's not all, always going to be the case because there's some, you know, there are some local companies that are um, some of the companies that routinely work, do work in the north that don't maybe have uh, that the locals don't have the greatest opinion of. But, um, you know, that's uh, that's another th matter for another day. So sure, sure. So another issue that uh, has come up is, you know, regulation, right? I mean, we're, we're used to regulating, uh, I guess, in Canada, we're, we're used to regulating CANDUs, you know, reactors that are kind of 500 to uh, 800 and something megawatts. And I mean, so just to give people a, a sense of that, you know, we have, uh, I think Bruce is uh, getting, I mean, they're targeting seven gigawatts of output, but probably 6.5 now, like that's enough to power Toronto in a bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, millions and millions of people are getting electricity. So that's the scale of these things. And we're used to regulating at that at that side. Um, I, this probably gets a little bit, uh, you know, complex when we're talking about, okay, we need to regulate it in an entirely different paradigm, right? And part of that is, you know, SMRs have such a small core. Um, the, the potential for accidents really, you know, even if you run through every potential flaw that could ever happen, you know, the core is just so small that decay heat's really not, an issue. And I mean, that's, that's the main issue with like, a, so with a meltdown, right, is, is like the, the decay heat. So um, how do you see the some of the regu regulatory challenges? I think security is another one of them as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the regulatory challenges, well, the problem is, is with these smaller units, of course, is that you've got um, the reason that the Ontario hydro can do's are, are so large that when they were constructed was the, the economies of scale was what was required to keep them um, you know, despite their large costs, they're still very, uh, you know, they're able to, com they're still competitive nowadays, regardless of, uh, 
you know, what people want to say about the different deals and the price of energy. And, and, uh, and I realized that there was a lot of stuff that went into a lot of issues and criticisms during the construction period and the like, but they, they make that back on scale. Um, what you're going to see is with a lot of these, uh, of a large, a lot of the new small modular reactors is the fact that there's a lot of, um, as you mentioned earlier there, you know, talk about the core meltdowns, the like inherent safety. There's a lot of computer modeling. There's a lot of these other things that have come in here. Um, but they just aren't going to have the scale to be able to pay for everything from, you know, from operations to, you know, dealing with all these local, the, the local energy costs of, of delivering uh, to the community. And I, I do think that maybe one of the workarounds for some of these smaller reactors is to try to... Um, regulate you know to try to contain the regulatory area to the reactor itself and to the areas of nuclear energy the 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 relating directly to the nuclear energy itself um the auxiliary side of the plant uh things like um everything from dealing with security to off-site um uh supports and things like that that you know, maybe there's another existing regulatory body that could be that could be used to look after those issues, but it or maybe it's something else that's just it's brought in as a uh, as a reference directly to the current regulator and and moved along. Um, one of the things I I do think we are going to see is that I do think maybe not this year, maybe not in ten years, but probably by next gen the next generation, we may actually start to see things like uh you know an Aboriginal regulatory body or like here in, in Canada, or at least some sort of a body that does an oversight or have, you know, puts forward, um, issues of concern and, and, and deals with a lot of these things. So in terms of how are you going to cover the costs? Cause like the, the regulatory cost ultimately is a, is a built in cost to any industry. It's going to be like transport Canada to airlines, to everything else. Ultimately they do have to, they have to, it has to be costed out in some way, either indirectly through taxes or directly through um, cost recovery. These things are going to have to be looked after. Um, and I ultimately, I do think it is going to come directly what, down to what the regula regulator themselves, you know, are going to want to see from a lot of these developers and developments. And But that's also why... I do think that for the most part, you're only going to be able to see at least the first generation of, of very small SMRs, micro reactors go into these communities that have such substantial power costs. But right. those are going to be the first places you're going to see them is because it's the only place where they're going to have a business case and be able to pick up, pick up those additional costs. So they're not going to be inherently super cheap, but they're going to hopefully be cheaper than the cost of shipping in this fossil fuel that we've we've already discussed. Um, what, one last point you said was the duct tape doctrine. Can you just can you go through that real quick? Um, you've lived in the North yourself and you're familiar with everything from, you know, like you, you see certain types of trucks to front end loaders, to other pieces of equipment, things like that. They get broken, they break down. Um, they have to be repairable. And this is where you come into issues with things like, um, inherent safety in reactors. You have to be in a situation where, you know, and I've had this discussion with family members of mine and I've told them, I said, well, you know, if any of these units come in, the vast majority of them are, are they're walk away safe. And then you get people that are like, oh, they're not going to walk. I said, no, they're not going to walk away from them. That's not what that specifically means. What it means, though, is that if something breaks or if something 
happens to them in that if you get some of these liquid metal cooled reactors if they get a leak what ends up happening is what happens to liquid metal when it when it's not being heated anymore it turns into a solid so effectively it freezes and it traps all of the material from the reactor in that leak uh, liquid sodium reactors very similar event as soon as it gets cooled below a certain level the liquid sodium freezes and it also turns into a solid um, remaining in containment and you don't have issues with high pressure water and things like that that are coursing through the reactor. Um, high temperature gas cooled reactors, again, same thing, they're able to air cool. Uh, if you look at uh, the Chinese HTR-10, which was a static uh, pebble bed modular reactor that they developed for uh, for research work on their, for their own uh, upcoming uh, pebble bed modular fleet. One of the things that they did was they turned off the containment to it uh, for three days and left it in a state with all of the uh, with all of the um, adjuster and shutdown rods uh, uh, materials removed and allowed it to stay in a state where it's it its only means of cooling was air cool was air cooled and they did it for three days um, at a stretch to demonstrate the safety of the design and in that case it was basically Doppler Doppler broadening that was uh, maintaining the reactivity of the reactors every time it rises above around 800 degrees celsius it uh, kills the likelihood of uh, of any fission occurring so that maintains the reactor at a certain level which is far below in this case the melting point or the failure point of the fuel um, i've talked to a couple of people who said that it was a publicity stunt and they shouldn't have done it in the first place but it's still even as a publicity stunt, it's an excellent demonstration that you can point to in real life to tell people, say, hey, listen, they put they, the Chinese did this, they shut off all the cooling to it, they pulled out all of the controls on it, and they left it to sit in the worst possible state that it could that it could be in, and it was like that for three days straight, and there was no failures, and they were yeah. able to bring it back directly into a situation, uh, yeah. back into normal operations again. Um, and that is... I think for a lot of people, that's that's something that is more. So it's supportive in any case. It gives them more comfort to know that that if something breaks, if something fails, um, that you don't have, you're not going to have these issues with um, water leaking out into the environment, carrying active materials in, in solution that that you know start working out through failures. Um, you know, and I, the other thing too, I've had this discussion with um, again family members, mostly in Western Canada, and that, that they bring they're they're the ones who bring me some of the most uh, outlandish stories that they that they've heard. And you know, for me to explain the the concept of a core catcher, or to explain that you know, or that this type of reactor that there's there's no water in it, you know, they're not going to put any water in it to to try to wash it out or or to try to cool it because they don't need to they don't need to do that because the reaction stops all on its own. Um, these are things in a lot of cases I find that that give lay people a lot more um, uh, confidence, and I, I know that's not really the duct tape doctrine in the circumstance that you were you were looking for, um, but it is a it is basically a an explanation as to why in this case um, the reactors that we're going to see in this current in the generation four plus uh, series do meet you know. Uh, a fail-safe state or do you know abandonment safe walk away safe whatever you want to call it even even the standards of civil collapse um you know in a lot of cases in that these are these units are all going down that path and i don't think you're going to see many new reactors that are going to be approved that don't 
you know, that are, aren't in the modern generation, you know, unless there's some sort of a boutique reactor that has other very specific uh, roles and, and, and duties and, and markets, um, you know, things like isotope generation and the like. I don't think you're going to see, um, I, I don't think you're going to see a lot of water-cooled reactors in the future. I know that New Scale's got a product, but their product's not really on the micro reactor side or likely to go into a, uh, a location yeah, yeah. Uh, that's going to be remote. So, Jay, one of the other issues um, that I thought was compelling in terms of a potential drawback is you're putting all your eggs in one basket here. I mean, these are there's going to be a pretty expensive cost up front. Um, obviously, this is a incredibly sophisticated sort of space age piece of engineering, um, you know, which following the duct tape doctrine is also something that doesn't require much in the way of maintenance. But, you know, if you're a community that's installed this and for whatever reason um, it's not working, um you know, what, what does that mean? I mean, you know, we talked about diesel um, generators that go down, they get a bit of water on the line and they freeze. It's not a unique issue, but um, that's a challenge, right? Yes, it is. And I do think that, and I guess coming back to that as well, like one of the things that comes along with the doct duct tape doctrine is what I've had, like I've had other people bring this up before. And this is another area where that I do think that the, the actual issues relating directly to the reactor need to be kept as close to the reactor as possible. Um, you know, if you have a district heating system and the like, maybe at that point, that's where the heat, where the heat exchanger is. That's where the, you know, the effectively where the end of the, the nuclear regulation ends when you have a double safe um, heat exchanger or something along those lines. So that if you do, even when the reactors, these reactors are shut down, there's still going to be a certain amount of decay that are going to, that are going to come off them that are going to be able to power things like, um, provide heat to the community. And maybe it's a case where there's not going to be as much heat as there was when it was running, um, but that heat will still be available. Maybe you won't be able to, and maybe you'll have to ration it out a bit. Um, there's going to be circumstances where you're going to be able to do things like have um, solid state uh, power, like a Pelche uh, generating device. Are you familiar with those? No, I'm not. I mean, let's let's not get too far into the weeds because I think we want to, like you, again, you and I could go on for hours here, but yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, I think uh, I'm thinking probably they're going to need to have maintained diesel backup and probably never use it, but, you know, at least have the capacity to. I agree. To I do think that that's, um, yes, you're going to have to, because the site itself is going to need, go, is going to need an emergency power generation, uh, backup. And if you're in a circumstance where you take the reactor down and even every, even every, you know, if it's every three to seven years that the reactor gets refueled or removed or exchanged, um, for a new one, the, the, the week that you're going to be doing that or there's going to be a crew yeah. in doing that you're going to have to be powering the community um, people aren't going to accept having the power turned the power and the heat turned off for a week at a time kind of thing so jay one one last issue that i wanted to um address is you know we, we talked a little bit about some of the you know folks who are very radiophobic um and some of their objections that you've met in meeting um and that, you know the example you had from someone in collingwood pointing the geiger counter <laughs> you know direction of a power plant and making those claims. Um, but I wanted to address, you know, in particular, if you've got experience um, engaging indigenous communities in the in the far north, I mean, this is a, a population that has not, um, you know, there's been major, major challenges in terms of, uh, I guess, you know, I think you were, th these are these are very complex technologies that, that have some danger associated with them in one sh way, shape or form, at least the image of it or the historical, um, uh, 
There's also a low level of trust. uh, Again, very low level of trust. I mean, communities that have been really mistreated by by the government in terms of residential schools or killing all the sled dogs in Nunavut. Um, You know, there's major reasons for there to be distrust. And now there's, you know, a government, um, you know, there is government support. The SMR action plan is actually being launched as we record this. Um, But, you know, how 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 have conversations been within those communities, not just with sort of, um, you know, the most extreme kind of radiophobic people in the south. But when you're engaging with communities up north, um, what's what's that been like for you? I haven't been out doing um, doing the the public uh, speaking thing for or the outreach thing for a little while now. I'm only just getting back into it. Um, but what I was running into it at the time was that that uh, it's again it's one of those things that there's uh, there's a large there there tends to be a large amount of um, I don't want to say silence, but there's a lot of it is, and as you say, and calling it an advanced technology and the like, and to say that to bring it in and we're going to do this, we're going to you know make everybody's lives better. Um, in a lot of cases, people you know don't want to be rude; they don't want to come out and you know say stuff and that. But it's it's a lot to digest, and yeah. a lot of times, what'll end up happening is people also don't like in a lot of time in a lot of communities they don't like being the person to get up and to make a public. Uh, ask public questions or to make public statements or, or things along those lines. Or even if they are in support of what you're doing, they don't want to be seen publicly, right. you know, in support right. of it. So it, it's funny that there's a lot of silence in a lot of cases. And sometimes what you have to do is you have to make sure that you hand out a lot of um, a lot of business cards with, the, with your email and, and make sure that you're accessible afterwards for, you know, for coffee and tea um, for people to come up and, and directly ask you you know, things. And what I found is that people are cautiously optimistic on the most part. Um, and you, and like most places, you're always going to end up with some people who are extremely enthusiastic and you're going to find some, always going to have a small group of people who are extremely unenthusiastic about the idea, but, um, cautiously, I would say the vast majority are quietly, cautiously, um, interested optimistic may, you know enthusiastic or optimistic may not be the right word but there's cautious interest right okay i was just you know i was just thinking because I, I introduced this as you know there's an element of danger associated with smrs i think you know just to qualify that i think that danger is very low and when i think about my time in the north probably the most dangerous things i did was ride around in a snowmobile um you know <laughs> at some uh, i wasn't even on one of these high speed machines but you know what i mean and just yeah as, as a doctor, you know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking in terms of public health, you know, what are the low lying fruits to, uh, to to safety? And really, it's, you know, be careful when crossing at an intersection. And I think about my own self, you know, I've got to drive and constantly be wary of pedestrians in Toronto. I mean, that's the most likely place where I'm going to hurt someone or where I could myself be hurt. Um, you know, and then in terms of my kind of long term health risks, it's really cooking over smoky fires in the Yukon, I think probably set me up with my five or 10 year, you know, 10 pack year smoking history. <laughs> without <touching laughs> a cigarette. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this relative risk thing is, is very interesting. I think um, we'll wrap it up there. Um, maybe we'll have you back for, for a further conversation, particularly, like I said, the SMR roadmap is literally being launched as we speak. Um, I'm sure there'll be more developments to discuss down the road. But Jay Harris, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been it's been such a pleasure talking with you, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, and I I know I don't think we got to everything, but it is such a big topic. Yeah, yeah. We'll have you back, Jay. I'm quite confident of that. Okay. Well, you, thank you very much, Chris, and you have a good day. All right. Take good care.
Take care. Bye. We can do it. We can do it. This is not the time to shirk. We can do it. Thank you so much for joining us on the We Can Do It podcast. Be sure to like, review, and subscribe.